We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML. After a nice long weekend, it's a beautiful Tuesday. Well, beautiful-ish. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson this week. Hope you had a great weekend. I mean, for the most part, it was quite lovely. Hope you had a great time. Great extra day. Now we're back at it. That's okay. You know what? Because I guarantee that no matter what your status is on this Tuesday after a long weekend, when all of us are, you know, everyone's a little like, oh man, I could have used an extra day or week. I guarantee you, you are having a better day than Peggy Jones. I guarantee you, there is not a person out there today who is listening, who I believe could possibly be having a worse day than Peggy Jones. So there's always somebody who is below you. You can always rest on the fact that, well, I'm still better off than that person. What's the Peggy Jones story you're saying? Who's Peggy Jones? Let me tell you about Peggy Jones. Peggy Jones lives in a town called Silsby, Texas. Silsby, Texas. I have no idea where Silsby, Texas is, except that it's in Texas. Whittles it down. Uh, Peggy was out mowing her lawn in Silsby, Texas the other day. Uh, last Tuesday, in fact, and a rather bizarre thing happened. A snake fell out of the sky and landed on her, which is, you know, never a great thing. I don't care what kind of snake it is. I don't care if it's a garter snake or a king cobra. A snake falling from the sky and landing on you is never going to be all that much fun. By the time that Peggy had realized what it was that landed on her arm, took a second, Somehow the snake had latched on. I don't know if it's by its fangs or by wrapping itself around her. Anyway, as she begins waving her arm wildly to get this snake off her, probably screaming bloody murder too, I would have been. As she's waving her arm wildly around to get this snake off her, she is now attacked by a hawk. So she's got the snake. The snake is looking. I think the, the hawk was carrying the snake and dropped it. Anyway, makes sense why a snake would fall out of the sky. Now she's got a snake on her and a giant, angry, carnivorous raptor with giant talons. Sounds like, <clears throat> sound like Napoleon Dynamite all of a sudden. She was, let's just say her arm. If you, if you saw the movie years ago, the Mel Gibson movie, if you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ. After the flogging scene, that's what her arm looked like. It's horrible. So she's fighting off a snake and a hawk simultaneously, screaming for her husband to come. Anyway, she finally got away. But you, no matter what your day is going like, and if you want to, by the way, if you want to see the prove this story is true, that I'm not making this up, just type in Texas snake hawk lady. It'll come up. I guarantee it. Lisa in the newsroom already did. She, she was intrigued. Texas snake hawk lady, you will find the story and you will see the photos. It's, you're having a better day than she is. I guarantee you. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't think it was making that noise though. It was more like the Jurassic Park sound of one of the raptors. Cause that's what, uh, that's what it is. Anyway, let me tell you what's coming up on the show today. We have got lots other than snakes and hawks and angry talons. We're going to be talking about cars and your car, your vehicle. There is a pretty good chance, and I'm not being facetious, there is a pretty good chance that your car ought not to be on the road. 6.6 million recalled vehicles, apparently, are currently on the road in Canada. 
How do you know if yours is one of them? What should we do about this? Are, is it dangerous? We're going to get into all that stuff. The Ticats, don't know if you heard this. Uh, another, uh, how do we describe their performance on the weekend? Less than ideal. Is that a generous way to describe it? A less than ideal performance on the weekend. The offensive coordinator, Tommy Condell, has now been shown the exit. Well, they say it's by mutual decision. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, we're going to talk to Rick Zamper, host of the fifth quarter about the Ticats and their moves. Also, uh, sticking with sports this hour, the Canadian Open, which is going to be in Hamilton this year, the PGA Tour announced its new schedule today. It's reimagined schedule. It says, well, reimagined might be a little bit nightmarish for the Canadian Open. There is a new week for the Canadian Open. It's not so much the week on the calendar that is an issue. I don't think it is. It's what's around it and what tournaments are before and after. We'll get into that one this hour as well. Uh, we're going to be talking about the LRT. Have you heard about what's been going on in Ottawa? You've probably heard about Toronto, the construction, just mayhem. Nothing is going right with the LRT in Toronto. Well, Ottawa has its own problems. It can't get its LRT to work. It's been weeks now that the LRT can't go. We've also had problems with the LRT in Edmonton and some in Calgary and some in Waterloo. We're going to be talking about the LRT, what's happened in Ottawa, but also we're going to be talking to you later on. When you hear about all these stories from all these other cities about LRT problems, are you confident that the people who are going to build the one in Hamilton, assuming it gets built, are learning lessons, taking notes and going to get it right because they've now seen all the possible things that could go wrong? Or do you look at this and go, no, ours is destined to be just as disastrous. We'll see if you're a pessimist or an optimist. But yeah, Ottawa right now, not, not good. Speaking of not good. It seems as though COVID has completely led us to forget our manners. There are report after report after report after reports of people not knowing how to behave when they go to the movies. This has been the biggest two or three week span in movie theater attendance since COVID with Oppenheimer and the Barbie movie. Tons of people going and just endless reports of nudity in the theaters, the people not being able to put down their phones and having conversations to fighting every, apparently we've forgotten how to behave in civil society because we haven't been to the theater or anywhere else in a while. We'll get into that one. Uh, housing, you know, big debate now, prime minister and others leading to this debate is housing a federal issue. Whose issue should housing be? We'll get into that one. Uh, the news blocking. The companies are now wanting steps to be taken to stop the blocking of news. We'll get into that. Lot, lots more. And we also have a Twitter poll today. Uh, last Friday's Twitter poll, do you prefer self-checkout or going to a cashier when you're shopping for groceries? 70% said cashier. They want a real person. 30% like self-checkout. Today, as Ontario's court system continues to deal with a massive backlog of cases, should the province scrap Civil juries, only have juries for criminal cases. Hmm. Interesting one. Uh, yes or no, go to Twitter or X. What are you supposed to call that anyway? Uh, go to that thing, that, that site, whatever that social media site is and, uh, look for 900 CHML and cast your vote. We would love to hear from you. You know what does not have staying power? Cars. Seems that 6.6 .6 million vehicles are on Canadian roads that have a recall for them. It's like one in five vehicles that are on our roads have a recall on them 
And yet apparently, I guess nobody's bothering or they don't know about it or I don't know. Let me bring in someone who will know about this. Uh, she is the columnist with driving.ca. She's also a columnist with the Hamilton Spectator and the best-selling author of A Face in the Window, the world best-selling <laughs> novel in paperback on July 15, 2023. That's Lorraine Sommerfeld. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. I am. Uh, it is best-selling right now. You and John Grisham are dueling it out for uh, for top spot right now, correct? That's that's what I've heard. Can I take you everywhere with me, Scott, to introduce me that way? <laughs> as long as you play Gary Newman cars when you do. That's. Uh, <laughs> I have vinyl on that. <laughs> I have it in the basement somewhere. So let's get to this, though. There are 33.3 million vehicles registered in Canada, which I find stunning, quite honestly, in this country, yeah. considering only 40 million people. Nonetheless, 6.6 million of those have a recall on them, which either tells me that nobody cares or people don't know about this. There's a few things here. Um, for I'd like people to know that a recall is not a terrible thing. In in most cases, it means the manufacturer is getting ahead of a problem and not waiting it for, for it to become one. And so recall has a kind of stigma about it that it shouldn't. That said, there's some recalls they should put a lot more muscle into because they are important. But um, when as soon as, if you buy a car new, then the manufacturer has a direct connection to you, a direct link. As soon as you buy a car secondhand or you know it goes down the line, that connection gets broken. And so what consumers have to do is regularly, if they if they don't see outstanding recalls or it's not something they think about, Transport Canada. You go on the website, you put in your VIN number. You can see it through your windshield. It's on your your green slip, whatever, you can punch it in. You can see if there's any outstanding recalls on your vehicle before you're about to buy a car, a second or third hand car, do the same thing. Check on your phone, Transport Canada, put in the VIN number. You can see if there's any outstanding recalls. You can also call the dealer that represents your brand. You can ask them if there's something outstanding and a recall is repaired by the manufacturer, it doesn't cost you money for outstanding recalls, so you don't have to, you know, you're not going to be taking on extra expense for that. But unfortunately, we're in a time where it's buyer beware and owners have to be really careful. Yeah, it, I mean, it, a lot of people are suggesting that this is a dangerous thing. I mean, I, I kind of was with you when I first heard this. It's like if, if there's a, a small defect in something that's not really that big a deal, is it dangerous? I, and you're right. There obviously are some that are. What was the, we don't have to go into it now because I think lawsuits were flying with the gas can exploding at one time or another. But, um, you know, that would be obviously something that would be a big deal. But this, if, if you've got a, a, a lock mechanism that doesn't come fully up or something, I mean, who cares? Mm -hmm. Well, like my biggest problem is when cars, um, if they have power failures at speed, that's a big thing. Yes. The power shuts off. So you're absolutely right. There's some really big things, you know, that have to be looked at. And again, the only way you can know if this impacts you is by doing it directly. Like just going and dumping in that number, it will tell you. And even small stuff should be fixed. But the problems we're having now is these shortages we keep talking about. There's been airbag recalls. It started with Takata. It's gone into a whole bunch of GM stuff now, they don't have the parts. So they're sending notes to people saying, yeah, there's a recall. This could blow up and people, you know, people could conceivably die. Some have, uh, but we don't have the parts for it yet. And legally, that's all they have to do is tell you about it. So surely, kind of surely if they tell you there's a problem, but they can't fix it, they're still on the hook for it. If something bad were to happen. No, they tell you you can go rent a car if it's, if it's going to make you crazy. This is a, kind of like a loophole in the legislation in North America. We follow North America 
or we follow the U.S. when it comes to direction on safety issues and stuff with cars. So there's not a lot of teeth in it. Transport Canada isn't even as, you know, ballsy as NHTSA. It's, um, well, the other thing, Lorraine, about this is that, okay, so you're, uh, of course, as we both said, and, and I think you're right, that, you know, there's a lot of these that are very small, picayune things that we don't, you know, if it's fixed, great. If it's not fixed, it's not the end of the world. But for these big things, there have to be people who are not getting these fixed. If we've got 6.6 million cars that are on the street, some of these must be the significant things. Why would people not be getting those fixed? I think because people don't understand um the obligation they have to themselves and to the safety of their passengers. Cars are not just a benign thing where you get in and start it and go. It's You can't do that. It's like people that never get oil changes done and things like that. You have to do some due diligence and maintenance on these things. And again, once that chain is broken and they don't know who's owning this car, it doesn't mean nothing bad is happening to it. You know, that's like my cat sticking her head into the couch and thinking nobody can see her. You have to you know, take some responsibility on this and regularly check for outstanding recalls. Mm. Again, they get fixed. It doesn't cost you money. But the same way you take your pet to the vet, you don't wait till it's sick. You go annually, you know, to make sure it's okay. Um, Some really good garages, independents, will know there's recalls and tell their customers, which is great. I have one like that. But it's not on them to track every single vehicle, but it is on the person that's driving it. And should we have a better system? Of course we should. We don't. Some of these are small. A lot of times I've seen recalls issued on cars that were just made during a few hour window on a line. So they are very, very on top of that because they don't want to do expensive recalls. But if you see a headline and recall, and even if your brand's in there, go to Transport Canada, dump in your VIN number, sorry, VIN, check. Just check and make sure that the stuff Mm. is covered. Call your local dealer, say you're coming in to get it fixed. And if you're selling a car, show them that all the outstanding recalls have been done on it. If you're buying a car, ask if they've been done and check yourself on Transport Canada. What is this oil change of which you speak? (laughs) (laughs) You know what, people? Every six months, I don't care what mileage you're doing. Every six months at the minimum. It's the cheapest thing you can do to keep your car happy. Yeah, it's, um, I'll tell you when, so I'm pretty good at that, although I'll tell you, and I think I'm probably not alone in this one, although maybe this is just, you know, time for uh, self-confessions. During COVID, I bet there were an awful lot of people who were like, well, I've only driven 12 kilometers in the last four months. So, uh, and my hand, my hand is up by the way. Oh yeah. No, I had this conversation with a young woman last night who knows me impeccably well because I, you know, only allow her to buy certain cars. But I said to her, I go, I don't care what your mileage is. I don't care. Your manual will tell you, but it'll say six months or go by the six months people. It's the cheapest maintenance you can do. And it's the most important one. And it's also the dumbest one to miss when it comes to warranty. Well, equally dumb to miss that. Equally dumb to miss, by the way, would be going on to Amazon and buying a face in the window available now in paperback <laughs> from Lorraine Sommerfeld. She's not paying me for this ad. Uh, you can get it, uh, as I say, Amazon and where, where all fine books are sold, I think, right? There you go. You can go to a faceinthewindow.com. Every, even reviews are there. They're piling in. We're having so much fun with this. There book. you go. There you go. Uh, so yeah, while you're waiting for your car to be repaired on its callback, you can, uh, you can read a, a face in the window. There you go. Lorraine, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Oh, you know, a lot of people around here wish the tie cats were humming, but I'm not sure that's the right verb. Let me bring in Rick Zamper. He is not only the host of Good Morning Hamilton, but also... The voice of expertise and excellence on the fifth quarter after every Ticat game. 
including last Saturday's or this Saturday's, uh, in which Rick stayed overtime on the air because there were that many people lined up to express their displeasure. Rick, it was a long night. It was a long night, but it was, you know, it was a night in which fans could, you know, get things off their chest. And that's what the fifth quarter is all about, listening to and from Ticats fans to hear, hear what they're saying and what their views are of this team. And, you know, to a person on Saturday night, especially after this particular loss against Montreal, a lot of fans were singing from the same songbook, and that was Change is needed. Yes. Yeah, so 27, 14, they lost them to Montreal after leading for much of the game. They got outscored 18, nothing in the fourth quarter, which is generally not a good thing. Uh, and yes, on the fifth quarter and elsewhere, a lot of people saying this team, the offense in particular has just not been good, which it hasn't really. And that a number of people on the show this week and in past weeks have said Tommy Condell, offensive coordinator, his name has come up a lot as something that needs to be changed. Today it was, Rick. Yeah, and, and listen, whenever a football team is not performing on, uh, you know, a certain aspect of the game, this being offensively for the Tiger Cats, because the defense has been good, special teams has been good, the offense, not so much, last in the league in a number of categories or near the bottom in a number of categories. And a lot of the fans were thinking, you know, the fall guy's got to be the offensive coordinator. You can't fire all the players, so... On Monday night, uh, Tommy Condell uh, was shown his walking papers and the Ticats announced that senior assistant coach Scott Milanovic would be the new guy calling the plays from here on in. And, you know, Ticats fans, I think, should be, you know, not only happy because they've, they've gotten the change that they wanted for, but in Scott Milanovic, they're getting a guy who has a proven track record. Here's a guy who was the offensive coordinator in the heydays of uh, Anthony Calvillo in the 2009-2010 Grey Cup winning Montreal Alouettes, and in his first season as head coach of the Toronto Argonauts with in 2012 with Ricky Ray, guided them to a Grey Cup championship. So he has rings, he has experience, he gets the job done. Um, let's see if he can do it here. Mm. That's, uh, you know, how, how he's going to unlock this offense is going to be very intriguing. You say, you're so cynical, Rick. You say the Ticats showed him his walking papers. The Ticats and he mutually agreed to go in their own <laughs> ways, Rick. Come on. Yes. You got you to stay with the uh, the official program here. This was a decision they came to over, you know, pad thai and some, uh, you know, some red wine on after the game, right? I mean, it was all very uh, friendly. You know, it's all in the wording, <laughs> but I, I really could not see... You know, anyone of Tommy Condell's ilk going into an office and say, you know what? I think we've had enough. Uh, I think this was a front office decision. Of course it was. Uh, whether it was led by head coach uh, uh, Orlando Steiner or even somewhere above him to say, listen, we we do need a change. We need a new lens. We need a spark on offense, which I was talking about on Saturday night after the show or after the game as well, is that this team needs something new. Very reminiscent of when they were 0-8 in the last year of head coach Kent Austin, June Jones comes in and everything seemed to change offensively. Brandon Banks uh, suddenly was a star in the CFL right. because he was now being used on offense. This is the type of change that this team needs. It needs not necessarily a new playbook, but a new approach on how to implement the plays and when to run these kind of plays. That is, uh, and you know, I, I think a lot of people who watched and called and you and others have said that, 
The the fly in that ointment, I suppose, is twofold. One, the players have to execute this. I mean, you can give yes. all the best calls that you want. The players have to do it. And the execution has not been good. It hasn't been Tommy Condell that was overthrowing receivers and other stuff. Mm-hmm. There's also the fact that they are down to their third quarterback. Is this... I'm, I'm, well, I'm not assuming when Bo Levi Mitchell comes back from injury, whenever that is, you know, he's going back in unless they're on a five or six or seven game winning streak. He's going in. Is he going to have enough time? Scott Milanovich or not? If it's all about execution or largely, is it, does it matter who is calling the plays unless the guys execute? As long as the play is being executed. No, it does not matter who is doing that execution. This uh, you know, sport as most pro sports are results based businesses. And at the end of the day, if you are a player who's not getting the job done, no matter what nameplate is in the back of your jersey, you are replaceable. It, it's happened time and time again. It will happen here if we see whoever not performing up to their standard. Now, the interesting thing about this is Bolivai's not coming back for uh, a, a number while. of weeks. Yep. Matthew Schultz, the backup QB, not coming back for a number of weeks. This is. Taylor Powell's team, unless Scott Milanovich comes in and says, you know what, Antonio Pipkin, he's the type of quarterback I think can, you know, run this system more effectively than Powell. And that remains to be seen. I don't have any inside information on that, but he is going to have the system that's already in place and adding new wrinkles to that. And I think it's going to take him maybe two or three games uh, to figure out which guys are performing in, in his plan. Well, if, if there is a good bit of news to this, besides the fact that a lot of people are happy about Scott Milanovic, because he does have the resume that you talked about, you have a bye week to figure things out. And then you've got the Edmonton Elks losers of every game since 1914, it seems anyway. I mean, they just, they cannot win to save their life. Yeah. That is almost guaranteed win night. So you, you, you're at least not going in against the Argos or the Bombers for your first game with Milanovic to try and figure this out. You can, this is, this is just about the perfect scenario to ease your way into figuring out what you're doing. It is, unless, you know, the, the Elks are hosting Winnipeg this week and let's just say Edmonton loses and they're 0-9. There is a little bit of pressure on the other side of the field to not be that first team to lose against Edmonton, right? They'd be 0-9, one of the worst starts in CFL history. It is already the worst start in Edmonton history. You don't want to be the team that loses. So that might not be the game to say, eh, we can take it easy or, hey, let's try something way out of the box and see if it works. Um, because that is a an almost guaranteed two points, the way Edmonton is going. They're, they're starting to tinker with their lineup too, right? Trey Ford's going to start a quarterback yep. against the Bombers. So they're figuring things out. The Ticats are too, but they have way more at stake Hosting the Grey Cup, still in a playoff position right now, despite their three and five record. That's not the time to start tinkering around. It's it's a must win scenario from here on in. Yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, the, you know, there, there comes a point for Edmonton at which it doesn't matter anymore. You can be so loose because it doesn't matter. Y- you're right. You don't want to be the team that when they land at that point that you're the next one on the agenda because. Uh, you know, teams that have nothing to lose sometimes can do some damage. Anyway, we will see. Scott Milanovic in, Tommy Condell out. Hey, we got to go, but is this the last step before Orlando Steinauer? I mean, if this doesn't work, is he next? I guess it all depends on how the team plays, but if they come out of this and still not performing, it's the next logical step, you to be think. honest. 
That is Rick Zamprin. You can hear him on the fifth quarter after every Ticat game. Thanks, Rick. You got it. You can also hear him tomorrow morning at 5.30. At the bright and early hour of 5.30, get up for Rick. The PGA Tour has reimagined, that's its word, reimagined its new schedule for next year. And the RBC, asterisk, Canadian Open, has a new date. It's a week earlier, May 27 to June 2. They've moved it up a week. It's now right before the Memorial Tournament, which is a big tournament. And then the week before, after that is the U.S. Open. And... It's two weeks after the PGA Championship. It's kind of nestled right into a sandwich of huge events. Does that help? Does that hurt? Let's bring in Adam Stanley. He is a golf journalist. You can read his piece on this at sportsnet.ca right now. Adam, thanks for doing this today. No problem. Thanks for having me. This is, uh, well, let me read something that you wrote today. I'll read your own words back to you here. (laughs) At At first blush this time around, it seems the PGA Tour is again having its way with the bank, even though RBC is the only two tournament sponsor on the schedule. RBC has sponsored the Canadian Open since 2008, renewing the deal twice and certainly deserved better for 2024. This is not an ideal spot, is it? It's, you know, it's, it's a bit of... Down the line with that, with respect to to where it is, because RBC and certainly Golf Canada are are keen to have this this June time. They want to take advantage of kids still in school, but kind of at the end of the school year so they can make field trips out of it. They didn't want it to be in July or August because they've had it in that July date after the Open Championship for a decade and a half. And that date is really, really bad. And July, August, certainly with with respect to Canadians and certainly with respect to uh, the majority of folks or, or just a, enough of a handful of folks in the big markets that they're taking this tournament uh, in Southwestern. Ontario, you know, they may not be at home home during July and August or certainly one of those weeks. So um, I personally thought because the designated events, the signature events got installed in the schedule kind of late this year and it was the week before the U.S. Open, I actually think this year's date was worse than next year's date. And, And what I said in that graph, in that paragraph you just read back was, you know, RBC has done a lot. They've spent a lot of money with the PGA Tour and on PGA Tour golfers. And obviously that gigantic bombshell of an announcement with respect to the the future of the golfing world was dropped during Tuesday of this year's tournament. And I just assumed, I thought my my POV on the matter is, hey, the bank can can have whichever date that they would like. Instead, it appeared as if the PGA Tour said, you know, to its only two tournament sponsor, mm, we're going to we're gonna move you around. And, and, and that's the way it's going to be. So um, that was kind of my, my thought on, on this new date. It kind of remains to be seen what the field's going to look like when we get to the summertime. But um, you're right. Sandwiched around some of the biggest events on the PGA Tour is, is exactly correct. And and I don't think the date for the fans is a terrible date for the reasons you just laid out there. People are still home. They haven't left for the cottage or camp or whatever yet. That's fine. But again, if you're a week before the Memorial, two weeks before the US Open, I know that there are golfers who will play three or four or five weeks in a row, but a lot of guys, especially a lot of the top guys, two weeks and then a week off or whatever else. It may be, am I wrong? It may be a challenge to get some of those top, top guys. Yeah, that's, that's totally, that's totally accurate. And I guess for the casual sports fan who may not know what we're talking about, signature events, designated events, et cetera, et cetera, the, the Memorial Tournament long hosted by Jack Nicholas, its purse is $20 million. The purse for the RBC Canadian Open last year was $9 million. And then of course there's the US Open, a major championship, gigantic purse. 
And the week after the U.S. Open is the Travelers Championship down in Connecticut. It's another signature event, formerly known as a designated event, which means another $20 million. Right. So, so three weeks after the Canadian Open, for three straight weeks, you've got these massive events. Yes. Meaning yes. you may or may not decide you're going to play in the Canadian Open. That is correct. Because as you also mentioned, so we've got PGA Championship, major championship. Then there's the, uh, the Charles Schwab event, which is in Texas. Then there's the Canadian Open. Uh, and then you've got massive event, massive event, massive event all in a row. So essentially, we've got a bit of a fingers crossed scenario where we're, we're going to want to have guys who like playing four events in a row. Rory McIlroy is one of those guys. He's played four events in a row in 2019, 2022, and 2023 when he's come to play the Canadian Open. Uh, or maybe think that there's going to be some guys who, even though it is Jack Nicholas's event the week prior to the U.S. Open, they don't want to get beaten up by uh, by the Memorial, by that golf course, by Muirfield, uh, and they just don't like playing. They don't want to get beaten up two weeks in a row. So maybe they'll come play the Canadian Open. They'll skip the Memorial. They'll play the U.S. Open. And and maybe they'll play travelers um, and, and because there's no cut yeah, we, in that travelers event. So uh, we'll see. We'll We're see. going to see who who likes to play the week before the uh, major and who doesn't. Um, uh, but this is what it is. Adam, we got 30 <laughs> seconds left here. There's one other issue here, and I know it's going to be tight to get it into 30 seconds, but there's RBC has not signed yet to be the official sponsor. Their name is beside this, but is there a chance that this spot makes them decide they're not going to sponsor this event? Well, they, they are 100% sponsoring this tournament. They are, okay, okay. For 2024. Beyond that, they signed a one-year extension uh, to get it into 2024 for this event and the Heritage. Beyond that, however, they're waiting to see what this new framework looks like uh, with the DP World Tour, the PGA Tour, and the uh, Saudi uh, Public Investment Fund. Mm. It's, uh, let's hope, fingers crossed, because it is one of the great events in this area and people around here love it. Let's hope that it's, uh, that something gets worked out and some of those big names get here. Adam Stanley, one of the big names who will be here when that happens. Uh, just <laughs> will for be, him. Yes. Look for him in the media tent. Uh, Adam, always appreciate you doing this. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting one. And by interesting, um, we will see. We will see. At least, at the very least now, the people who run the Canadian Open, Brian Crawford from Ancaster and, and others, uh, can begin putting together stuff like, you know, the concert series that they have, which at least you can start booking because you know what week it's going to be. That'll, the concert thing will be back again this year. Remember, it was Florida Georgia Line last time and... Uh, What's their name from Kingston? I can't remember now. Anyway, that'll be back. We'll see. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Don't know if you've been following what's been going on in Ottawa for the past few weeks with their LRT. It's basically been down for a number of weeks now. Something to do with bearings. They've had a problem with that. They're trying to figure it all out. But this is becoming an issue that it just go down the headline, do a quick Google search. Unreliable LRT keeps undermining public confidence in system. Ottawa, uh, Ottawa's bungled LRT highlights a deeper Canadian trend. We suck at building things. Uh, Ottawa's LRT didn't go wrong. It started wrong. Ottawa's colossal LRT debacle, a briefish history. Everyone knew LRT would have problems out of the gate. Ottawa's LRT public inquiry paints complete system failure. And we're not even touching on what's going on in Toronto with construction, which has been a mess. And there have been some challenges in Waterloo and Edmonton's LRT has had problems. Is this all pointing to the fact that when we get going on our LRT, assuming that happens reasonably soon, that it's inevitable that we're going to have problems here. I want to bring in Reese Martin, who's a transportation expert, is a YouTuber, joins us now. Reese, how are you today? 
I'm good. How about you? I am. Well, you tell me how I am. We in, <laughs> we in Hamilton, I think many of us are keeping a close eye on what's happening in Ottawa and what's happening in Toronto and what's happened in some of these places. And I'm not going to lie. It makes us a little nervous to see these things going on. Yeah, you know, that's uh, that's probably a rational reaction to uh, all the crazy news. Shouldn't though. So here's the thing. Um, I think the LRT in Ottawa is the fourth one that was built in Canada because there was Edmonton, Calgary, Waterloo was in there, Ottawa. Maybe there's the, the sky thing in Vancouver, maybe five, but shouldn't, as you do each of these things, there be lessons from each of these so that the next one always gets better than the one before? Yeah, that's, that's definitely the hope. Uh, the thing is, this term LRT gets thrown around, especially in Ontario, a lot. But the reality is that these systems are actually really pretty different from one another. Uh, and so that's that's a bit of a problem in the sense that you don't actually learn that much from one to the next. The systems we're building now in Waterloo and Hamilton and Ottawa and Toronto as well, they're more similar to one another. But you, we're not doing a great job learning lessons from one and applying them to to the others, for sure. That's disconcerting. Absolutely. You would hope that that's something we do more of. Because, I mean, let's use Ottawa for an example. <clears throat> Certainly it's one that we can use as an example. They've had problems with wheels not being perfectly around, which as I said a moment ago, seems like it should be about the easiest part of this whole thing to figure out. Bearing problems, which have it shut down now, they've had problems with freezing rain, with cold temperatures, with door computers. I mean, you go down the list, it's been one thing after another. Surely when Hamilton's is built, we should expect, I think that none of those things would happen again because all of those things would have been figured out, correct? Yeah, for sure. And when you look at the system in Waterloo, which is a lot more similar to the one that Hamilton's getting, they've had a lot less issues. But they're still, I mean, it was delayed by a couple of years and they've had, I mean, there are things and, and nobody, I don't think Reese, I don't think anybody says, Hey, you're going to build a 2 billion or whatever it is now, $4 billion project. It's going to be without hiccups. We know that it's going to have hiccups. Any project this big is going to have some hiccups. The question is, is it a hiccup or is it a full on projectile vomit? And a lot of these, it's been more the latter. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly in Ottawa, that's been the case. Uh, I think that the hope is that we we don't uh, we don't repeat the mistakes that were made there. I think a big part of that was that the city of Ottawa was basically running running the project, and and that's not a really great idea because the city of Ottawa doesn't know how to you know build a train project. And so the hope is in Toronto with Metrolinx that you have this big organization that has the ability to learn from one project to the next and they have more expertise. So the project in Hamilton will hopefully go better because they built the Eglinton project, hopefully learned lessons. They're building a project on Finch, which has gone better. Uh, and that, that they're also going to hopefully learn from, and there's a project in Mississauga. And so you're hoping that with an organization that does all of these projects, they can learn and apply those learnings to Hamilton. Is there any thing we should learn here? Because one of the discussions that's happening in the city is who should operate this? Is there anything consistent across the country from these different LRTs that we should take? Is there, is there a better way? Is it better to operate it yourself or is it better to have someone else do it? Or is there no lesson out there right now? I think it's, it's a bit mixed. When you look at Waterloo's system, they contract operating it out. Uh, so does Ottawa's, but 
you know, one of them has been an unmitigated disaster. The other has gone pretty well. So I don't think that who operates it is necessarily the most important thing. I think it's really how do you design it? How do you build it? Should in Hamilton, should there be something that the people here, and again, it's going to be a Metrolinx, a provincial build, but is there anything that the city can do in your mind to say, don't let this happen? I mean, they can say, don't let it happen like in Toronto where it's years behind or in in Waterloo where it was years behind, but is there anything they can really do or are are they at the mercy of the builder? Well, I mean, ultimately, when it's the the province putting up the money, I think that the province is going to end up having a lot of control. But ultimately, the city can certainly uh, be adamant about following, following up, following the project closely. If there's problems, trying to address those early on, maybe something gets delayed and Metrolinx needs to close down the streets for a weekend. If the city can make that uh, that a quicker decision so that the construction can move along schedule a bit faster. That's the type of thing that will probably help the project be less delayed because so many of the issues that these big projects face are things that are kind of bureaucratic red tape, you know, getting the, mm. the permits to shut down a street when you need to do some construction when you didn't plan to, things like that. That is Reese Martin, a transportation expert, YouTuber. You can find him online. Uh, Reese, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I want to read something from the Washington Post for a couple paragraphs in the Washington Post. Barbenheimer, the twin release of blockbusters Barbie and Oppenheimer, may have broken box office records and brought people out to the theaters in droves, but it also highlighted a very real problem. Some people seem to have forgotten how to go to the movies. With widespread reports of drunken outbursts, rampant cell phone use, and exhibitionism. Hmm. Uh, well, next line here. Uh, the mayhem isn't limited to movie theaters. The past year has seen a disturbing trend of audience members throwing objects at musicians on stage. Over on Broadway, an unruly woman halted a performance of Death of a Salesman back in December. A controversial playbill expose from the spring detailed aggression toward ushers and other theater workers who reported being spat on and screamed at regularly. And not even the skies are safe. This week, an American Airlines pilot went viral for lecturing selfish and rude passengers on airline behavior. What is going on? Let me bring in Alyssa Freeman. She's a PR and pop culture expert, regular on the show here. Love having you on here. Alyssa, how are you today? I'm fine. Thanks for having me on. Well, this one... Like I would point to COVID initially and say, okay, people have been away from socializing in this context for long enough. Many have not been to a theater since then that they've just forgotten. And yet I don't understand. I don't think that you forget that spitting on someone is not an acceptable thing or being naked in a public theater is not acceptable. That, that seems kind of more basic than just forgetting, isn't it? You know, it is. And it, it, it's hard to describe human behavior these days. You know, you can be out in traffic and people are, are going crazy. I, I think a lot of it has been since COVID that there's a lot of pent up rage and people are still angry. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I do think that there's probably a lot more people who are on their phones and have lost all sense of cell phone um, etiquette within the theater. You know, if people who are scrolling on TikTok, people who are taking calls, people who are on speakerphone. And, and it's just sort of like, well, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I really don't care if I'm in a darkened theater with, you know, a thousand other people, but this is just what I'm going to do. And there's so, there seems to be this sort of like narcissistic sense of self that, 
you know, you really don't have, you don't care much about the people around you. And until, you know, you are actually called out or taken to task for it by those people around you, it seems that there is a complete lack of self-awareness in most of these cases. That's a great description because I was thinking, you know, who was the um, Cardi B? Not, I'm not a big fan of Cardi B, but uh, we saw a video of her the other day on stage. Someone whipped something at her and she, she right. responded by whipping her microphone back at the person, very frustrated. And I'm thinking until this or anyway, within the last few weeks, because there have been other examples, the only other time I can think of people throwing stuff at someone on stage would be women throwing their underwear at Tom Jones, but that's entirely different. Or when Justin Timberlake was performing at the SARS Fest and people were sort of throwing bottles of stuff at him, but it was rare. It was really rare. And now in the span of three or four weeks, we've probably had five cases of hearing about this kind of stuff. Like it's, it's been out there before, but not like it is now where it's almost acceptable somehow now. And the thing is, is to make it unacceptable. And that's why, you know, you can have security, but my goodness, do we need security at movie theaters? The latest sort of rampage of throwing things at a performer on stage. Um, you know, my daughter was actually at Oceaga in uh, Montreal over the past three days and nothing happened to any of those performers, I don't believe. So I think it's really, it depends on the crowd. It depends on what they see as sort of, you know, what, what they see as getting thrills or maybe their 15 seconds of fame or getting their yayas out. But until people are taken to task for it and there's real consequences, I hate to say it, but I think that this is going to continue. Um, you know, I did read an article about uh, a woman who uh, was in a movie theater and the author of the article was walking through the movie theater after a weekend of Barbenheimer and noticed that the, the woman was soaking wet. And the two employees, the movie theater employees, refused to point the finger at the people who dumped their drinks on her because she wouldn't get off the phone. Huh. So here she, you have a woman who's on their phone, probably with a bright light. She gets uh, drinks dumped on her, rightly or wrongly, and then complains that she was on her phone doing something wrong, but she still wants the, uh, the other people to be to be blamed. So people have this sort of odd sense of their rights of what they can do and that they don't have to pay attention to the rules anymore. And I think that there was a lot of that. There's been a lot of that since 2016. There's a lot of, you know, perpetu that that's been perpetuated. You know, even when think about government, government, don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to behave in a movie theater. So until you're taken to task for it, and I think that this will happen, um, you know, organically by the people who are attending these type of spectacles, that the behavior will stop when it once again becomes unacceptable. But how do you, we only have a few seconds left, Alyssa, but how do you do that? Because we've also seen a million videos online. You've probably seen them on Twitter of in mostly the States, but probably here now too, stores are being, are telling their employees, don't stop someone who's shoplifting because it's just not worth the risk. It's not worth the hassle. We'll just deal with it later. So this stuff is going on. I'm sure theaters are probably telling their security people, yeah, just don't, don't, don't get involved. It's not worth having you involved. How do you stop it then? You know, I think that a lot of when you hear about um, store managers telling employees not to get involved, I think it's because there's, you know, there's a lot of calls that go to the police and the police don't even have enough resources to go to your store and, and help you deal with it. And so when you think about, you know, what could happen vis-a-vis uh, -vis shrinkage of a stolen item versus what could happen when you stop somebody who may be unhinged, you weigh the consequences and you think, well, you know, which is the, the lesser of two evils? 
Um, it, it, it's unfortunate that this is happening. What are we going to do to stop this type of behavior? Well, you know, a lot of stores are now, you know, they're not letting you in so quickly. So, you know, they're either have a security guard or they're keeping their door locked and they're letting a few people in and a few people out. I mean, it's harder to have business that way and it's harder yeah. to sell in volume that way, but it's, it's, it's really just tough all around. It's just, it's, it's sad that we have to get to this point. It's sad. Uh, your, your word was the right word. Self-awareness that is lacking is just, it shouldn't be this difficult, but, um. Apparently it is. Uh, Alyssa Freeman, who is full of self-awareness, by the way, uh, <laughs> PR and pop culture expert. Always appreciate you coming on here. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Last week, was it last week? I lose track of time. On July, end of July, July 31st, when he was here in town. Prime Minister Trudeau was commenting on the housing thing. They were here for a big housing announcement. They were going to give $45 million towards housing projects, 214 units, along with some city money. And at the time, one of the questions was asked, and he said, housing isn't a primary federal responsibility. That led to a lot of questions. Whose responsibility is housing? Because heaven knows we need a lot of it. There is... Government numbers that say that Hamilton by the year 2031 is going to need 52, 53,000 new housing units. Whose responsibility is this to get it pushing forward? Is it the city? Is it the province? Is it the federal government? Who should be responsible for this? Everybody wants to seem to not be responsible right now and understandably so. Well, let me bring in Carolyn Witzman. She is a housing policy researcher. She's an expert advisor in the housing assessment resource tools, and she is an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. She is also the author of a terrific piece on theconversation.com. It's a website I encourage you to look up regularly. A lot of great stuff there. Housing is a direct federal responsibility, contrary to what Trudeau said. Here's how his government can do better. That is the headline on her piece. Thank you for joining me today. Really appreciate you taking some time. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, the headline is pretty clear and, the, and your piece is as well. It's not uh, just the headline, but there is a responsibility within the federal government for housing. This is what he said was not exactly true. Is that what you're saying? Well, all three levels of government have responsibility for housing, but the, where the federal government comes in is that it is level of government with the most um, uh, powers, most responsibility, the most revenues. And so it has the power to, it has the responsibility to lead on housing. The, the, the reason why some people might feel otherwise, I suspect, is because it's also the furthest away from the people. Municipal is closest, then provincial, then federal. And so some people might say, well, wait a second, it's the city or the province, because the province, of course, oversees the cities. So really the federal government is not. Is there any kind of law or rule or like, how would we point to the federal government and say they are partially at least responsible for housing? Well, I'd give you three arguments. The first argument is that uh, over the period 2018 to 2028, the federal government is going to be spending $89 billion on uh, the national housing strategy. So if um, housing isn't a federal responsibility, they're not showing it very much. Hmm. Uh, secondly, the federal government has signed on to a number of international covenants on human rights. And in 2019, 
it adopted the National Housing Strategy Act, which said that Canada has a responsibility to progressively realize the right to housing. So, um, again, it's now in federal legislation. But I guess the third argument that I'd say is from for almost 100 years since the national, it's called the Dominion Housing Act, in 1936, the federal government has stated that uh, it uh, its job is to provide housing. And it's had times, especially after World War II and again in the 60s to the 80s, where it was funding, financing, leading the production of a lot of affordable housing. But is it okay? And and those are those are terrific points, and they're compelling. Is there is it under is it understandable though? Why the prime minister? Why every level of government is running from this right now? Because it seems like this is the biggest hot potato, and no one really seems to have an answer. So hey, don't count me as the person who's got to solve this. Yeah, exactly. So there's been a lot of ping, uh, finger pointing. There's been a lot of blame shifting. Um, every single level of government says it's another level of government's responsibility. It's their fault. And of course, what Canadians need is for all three levels of government to work together and to work together with private and nonprofit developers and um, uh, the CMHC, which is a Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, not the Ontario or BC Mortgage Housing Corporation, to, to do its job. It's not surprising again, though, because when, when, when this announcement was made, the day this announcement was made, the prime minister was in Hamilton and they were announcing 45 million dollars of federal money along with 19 million dollars of, of municipal money. So 64 million for 214 units. That works out to about $300,000 a unit. When you start talking about hundreds of thousands of units needed across this country, that becomes an incredibly daunting number to start for now. I, you know, I don't know if 300,000 is the number that works, but it, this is not inexpensive. There is going to have to be billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars somehow to do this. Yeah. And that's also true of climate change mitigation. And it's true of any um, infrastructure funding. So it's really great that the new minister is the Minister of House, uh, Infrastructure, Housing and Communities, because if you're talking about a hospital, or if you're talking about a bridge, or you're talking about a new road, or you're talking about a public transit system, you are talking in the billions of dollars. So it shouldn't surprise or dismay the federal government or taxpayers for that matter. It costs a lot of money to provide the basics in terms of people's needs. Many of those homes, I assume, those housing units, we'll call them because they're two different things. Many of those, I suppose, could be created by the private sector from developers in which they make their money back. So that's, you know, neither here nor there. We clear the path for them to do this and they do it. Do we have any idea how many not-for-profit or geared income or low-income homes we need to build across the country that we'd be talking about? Well, look, it is a scary number. So right now, um, Canada's social housing, its non-market housing, is 3.5% of total housing. That's half as much as the OECD average, so the industrialized country average, which is 7%. Um, if you look at a place like Finland, which has eradicated chronic homelessness and is um, uh, doing uh, as good a job as any country uh, in uh, providing a decent, affordable home for everyone, you're talking about um, 
uh, about 17% wow. of um, housing stock. If you look at France, France since the year 2000 has been had targets for municipalities that they have to reach or they um, face penalties of 20% of all housing construction being social housing. But it shouldn't scare us because Canada had 10 to 20% of total housing construction being social housing from the 60s to the 80s. So it's not something we haven't done before, and it's not impossible. We just have to get real about it. Okay, so you think it can be done. You think the money exists. Because I, I, I believe there is probably the will to do it. It's just where is the money coming from? Oh, good heavens, money exists. I mean... Um, the UK spends 1.5% of its GDP. France spends almost 2% of its GDP. Singapore, which is an outlier, pays 7% of its GDP on housing. Canada spends 0.02% of its GDP on housing. Again, if you look at um, the $2.1 trillion that are currently there in investment savings, wouldn't it be great if pension funds were investing in affordable housing for the future of Canadians instead of real estate investment trusts, which in many cases are dehousing Canadians. The money exists in Canada. Canada is one of the richest countries in the world. The GDP in Canada is well over $2 trillion a year. The money exists. The question is, how are we going to use our collective resources in order to support the best thing for all Canadians. So Canada now has the highest level of household debt in the world, more than any other country, because of um, the reliance on housing as an investment. And, you know, the money exists. The question is, how are we spending that money and how do we need to spend this money? in order to ensure that people aren't dying on the streets. Uh, that is Carolyn Witzman. She's a housing policy researcher, uh, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. Thank you. Uh, go read the piece, by the way, at theconversation.com. Housing is a direct federal responsibility, contrary to what Trudeau said. Here's how his government can do better. You can agree, you can disagree, but it's still worth a read. Do that. Uh, you know the whole story by now. I'm sure you know the whole story that the government wanted... Meta to pay for links to news stories. Meta said, no, thank you. Not going to do that. We're instead going to block links so they don't go through, which of course the government then said, oh, it's a bluff. They're never going to do it. They did it. And now everyone's saying this is going to be disastrous for the news. So a whole bunch of publishers and broadcasters have now asked the competition bureau to investigate this move and then... Well, I don't know what they're supposed to do. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Ian Lee. He's associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. He joins us now. Dr. Lee, thanks as always for the time. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. Thank you. Okay. So the Competition Bureau, if they decide to get into this and they decide to investigate and then they discover that Meta is doing something wrong, what is the Competition Bureau going to do? Because Meta is already telling the government basically to go shove it. What what kind of muscle flexing does it have that it could do that would make Meta conform? None. Zero. Nothing. So what's the point? Um, okay, l let's back up because we're literally in an Orwellian alternative universe with the claims by the leadership of the 
cabinet promoting this, the heritage minister and the prime minister, as well as the, the media industry suggesting this. I am of one joined at the hip with Andrew Coyne of the Globe and Mail, who wrote a, a devastating column deconstructing these arguments. But that doesn't matter. I'm not, you know, you, whether you, I, I'm joined at the hip in agreement with Andrew Coyne or not doesn't matter at all. Let's deconstruct this and step back big picture. So everybody understands what's going on. Because I know there's lots of Canadians that say those big, bad companies, you know, Meta and, you know, Google, they're big, they're bad, they're mean, they're evil. And by the way, for those who want to start writing me an email saying, and I'll bet you you're on the payroll, I get paid by nobody in this world except Carleton University. And nobody but nobody tells me what to say or think. Okay, now let's get to the facts. The government in Parliament, as it's perfectly legally entitled to do, introduced a bill. And it said, in essence, I'm not going to go into the weeds, they said, we're going to regulate this industry. And it's essentially just like minimum wage says, if you're going to hire labor, you got to pay a certain price. You don't like it, don't hire them. That's what minimum wage law says. You can't say, she whiz, $18 or $16 or $15 an hour is too much. I think they're only worth seven, so I'm going to pay them seven. Can't do that. Very illegal. Either you pay the minimum wage or you don't use that worker. Okay, so the government decided to legislate and say, if you, these big social media companies, link, use links to stories, not even copy the story. You're just putting a link to a story. I send links to my friends all the time. I send links to journalists, by the way, of stories in the media, Globe and Mail, CBC, whatever. So the parliament said, if you, the social media, link to a media story, you must pay them money. If you link, you must pay them money. So this is a supply chain management, a classic management issue, supply chain management. Every company hires inputs and uses as a supply chain. Loblaws, Bank of Montreal, Carleton University, where I work. The hospitals, they don't make their own hospitals. They outsource to construction companies. They don't make their own x-ray machines. They buy them from Siemens. They don't run universities and hospitals. They go and hire the trained doctors that come out of the universities. That's my place because we train them. So in other words, uh, an organization, whether private or public, is a bunch of inputs that are transformed into outputs. This is intro to management 101. Google and Meta and these companies said, okay, one of the inputs we use to producing a product every day on social media is we link stories to in the media. And the government of Canada says, if you do that in Canada, you got to pay for it. So they looked at it. They did a cost-benefit analysis, which is what you always do. Every company does. just like Loblaws does to decide which apple suppliers they're going to use or which uh, cucumber suppliers or which fruit and you know vegetable suppliers. You do this every day, every company, every company. Universities do it. Hospitals do it. And you make a rational decision. Am I going to go with supplier A, B, C, D, E, or F? And I do, I, do I like the price? Do I like the value? Okay, classic strategy decision day to day. Okay, so they, the social media said, you know what? The benefit to us is far less than the price that the government is imposing, this minimum wage price or minimum price. So we're going to use our discretion as we are managers to just not link to these stories. We're not going to link any stories to Canadian media because then we'll have to pay hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's just not worth it to us in terms of the, the benefit to us. And now the prime minister and the heritage minister are having a meltdown, an emotional meltdown, along with the, the supporters of this in the media. 
And they're having a meltdown over companies doing what companies do around the world in every country, including Canada, and not just for-profit companies, non-profit companies. You make decisions every day. We get thousands of applications every year. We don't hire everybody that applies just because they apply. Therefore, we have to you know, give them a job. We make decisions and we say no to lots and lots of people who apply to become a professor or who apply to become you know, um, uh, support staff. And so do banks and so do grocery stores and so do broadcasters. You don't hire everybody that graduates from journalism school and says, I want a job. They, oh, come on in. We're going to hire you all. Doesn't work like that in the real world. However, in this alternative universe that we're in, this idea has emerged that because the government imposed a minimum wage price, a minimum price on linking, that they don't have the right to decide how much of that that supply they're going to use. They've said, we're going to use none. Well, going back to my minimum wage analogy, this has been studied to death. What happens every time we raise the minimum wage? Companies economize. They automate. They use automated checkout counters to use what? Less minimum wage. It's too costly for the benefit. This is classic rationalizing, economizing that every organization does and not contrary to what the NDP will tell you, it is not just for profit companies. Universities do it, hospitals do it, school boards do it, nonprofits do it, because resources are not infinite. They're finite. So you have to make tough decisions. I can't hire everybody. I can't use every supplier that applies. So I'm only going to use the ones that are going to uh, benefit the value creation of my company. The social media made a decision. Social media companies made a decision. Okay, we're not going to link to Canadian media because the cost is too great. Like, what, what is the problem here, people? What is the issue? It's no different than Loblaws going with supplier A versus B, C, D, E, or F, or a university hiring one candidate out of 10 that applied for a position as an assistant professor in economics. You don't hire them all. You hire one. And there, I got to jump in, but here's the thing. Um, I got a lot to say, and I got a lot more things to ask. We're unfortunately out of time, but for anyone listening, you just saved... I don't know how much it costs to attend one of your lectures or to, uh, to sign up for one of your programs. You just got Dr. Ian Lee's lecture on this. It was laid out perfectly. There you go. We provide this free service for you through Dr. Lee. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> Thank you. I do talk about this every week in class. I assure you. There you go. And sign it's, it's, it's so basic. It's so basic, people. People can we sign up. regulate the supply chain decisions. This is not the Soviet Union. People can sign up at the Sprott School of Business. Do it by Zoom and, uh, and tune in for his classes. Dr. Lee, as always, thanks for this. Thanks. I'm going to bring Tom in here from the other side of the glass who's playing that song, who knew that song off by heart, by the way. So there's that. So earlier today on Twitter, somebody posted a photo of a Kiwi pizza with a thumbs up or thumbs down. Rather than say pineapple, this is a pizza made with sliced Kiwi on it. Thumbs up or thumbs down on the Kiwi pizza. Already a huge, nope, (laughs) nope. See, it may be because I'm starving. I'm all over this. I would try the, I love pineapple. On pizza. So that already probably puts me in the minority. I don't know how, I don't know if it's a minority or a majority that likes pineapple on pizza. I love it. So I'm already, okay. So Kiwi, but let me ask you there, someone came up with a bunch of pizzas that have, these are toppings that people have sold and produced. This is not some, somebody just sitting in their basement going, okay, let's come up with the stupidest stuff we can find. Uh, these are octopus. Well, it may be there. These are things (laughs) that people have produced and sold commercially. All right. Would you eat pizza 
tomato ketchup and mustard pizza. Hold on. <laughs> hold on. So hold on. Uh, is it it's tomato? Ketchup, it's ketchup as your base instead of tomato sauce. Oh, And no. then you've got mustard on the pizza. I guess you could probably put hot dog slices on and make it a, essentially a giant hot dog on it. I guess you could. I don't know. The, the way I'm, I'm thinking about it right now is that ketchup is really sweet though. It's pretty, it would be a sweet it would pizza. Be, it's a, yeah. Like. But I, I, based on the fact uh, that I like kiwi and pineapple, sure. Mm. Uh, okay. Heinz baked bean pizza. Just a pizza layered in a thick layer of baked beans. Oh no, <laughs> no. <laughs> someone actually, if someone's actually tried that, I don't judge you. Not ever, but no. Again, I think that sounds okay. I, and again, it Maybe may it's just, just be my hunger. It could just be, I also don't like beans in general. Well, like I'm not, I'm not a big bean and, guy. And special benefit. You get to have the pizza today and a bubble bath tomorrow. <laughs> uh, okay. Peas. This is, this sounds like huh. an English thing, like a British thing. P pizza, P E A, not P E E, P E A pizza. That, thank you for clarifying Scott. Yeah. yeah that, that yeah, actually the first, kind of. The first one, yes. The second one, definitely no. <laughs> no, that actually, I wouldn't mind trying. I don't know if it would taste that good, Scott, but. I don't know. I'd be down to try it. Uh, all right. Here's what this is. This is maybe one of the weirdest ones you're going to get out of this list of actual things. It is apparently a very popular pizza in Russia known as the Mokba. And I have no idea if I've pronounced that correctly. So if you're Russian, I don't speak Russian. M-O-C-B-A and, and Mokba. It's got sardines, tuna, mackerel, salmon, and onions. It's cold fish pizza. That just sounds like the best way to- And it's served cold, by the way, this pizza. That sounds like the best way to uh, flip the bird to your dentist. Uh, that is- <laughs> Pretty much. Or, yeah, or your spouse or whoever yeah, your else. your spouse or whoever you're talking to, uh, just you, direct line of sight. You come home after a dinner of sardine pizza and then want to make out. Of mukba. Yeah. Uh, macaroni and cheese pizza. I mean, that, that I can see. That's, what, that sounds very carby. It does. Yes. But it also sounds like the college kid diet right there. It could be. That oh, could be. Oh. This one, this next one, I, I would eat this one eight days a week. Crab pizza. Ooh. Crab on. meat on pizza. Oh. That one, I, uh, in a second. Mm. In a second. All right. Um, mashed potato. I have had this. I have, well, I haven't had this per se. Really? I, I have had pierogi pizza, uh, which okay. is essentially mashed potato pizza by the time you lay it all out on the pizza. Well, I the, will tell you, I can eat a lot of pizza. I can put a lot of pizza. I had, I think one slice of this and it was so heavy. It was like, I'm pretty <laughs> much done. Well, uh, based on the list that you're looking at right now, um, where it says mashed potato pizza, what else is on it? Is it just mashed potatoes with the dough or is there other toppings to keep in mind here? Well, I'm sure you would put some kind of white cheese and- Well, is the mashed potatoes the base though? Uh, or is it the topping? No. Oh no, it would be the topping. You'd have it on a pizza dough, on a pizza- Really? Yeah, that's, it's a heavy, heavy, heavy- oh, I don't know heavy. about that one. All right. Now I'm just starting to get really hungry with some of these. These are now getting gourmet as opposed to weird. Mm -hmm. Caramelized onions, apples, and goat cheese. Oh huh. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Strawberry right. balsamic with chicken, sweet onion, and apple wood bacon. Oh, oh. Oh, Gordon Ramsay, take me now. Oh, the, all right. Uh, let's move away from that to something really weird. Sure. Yes. Yes. This is, uh, apparently served in Australia 
I can't believe that it's served in Australia, but they claim it is crocodile, emu, and kangaroo <laughs> all together on a pizza. <laughs> that is, they, they, I, I would try it. I would try it. I'll try any, almost any food I will try once. When I was in Africa, I was eating cooked grasshoppers and I mean, I don't care. I'll try anything once, but that sounds like it's a, a real test. They have won the great emu war. Yeah. <laughs> they have won. <laughs> Congratulations, folks. All right. Uh, a couple more here. A couple more. And then we get to the really weird one. Peanuts, bananas, chicken, pineapple, and curry powder. Huh. Peanuts, bananas, chicken, pineapple, and curry powder. Yes. Right now. Bring it in. I will eat that. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is a big one in Sweden, they say. Oh, okay. As is... Smoked reindeer. See, that I wouldn't mind trying. I would try that. Yeah. I would try that. Not around Christmas. I'd feel guilty. Yes. Uh, sorry, Santa. Yeah. No so much. Okay. Uh, two more that, uh, let's see. Oh yeah. Let's go with the two more here. Um, horse meat. Uh, well, I mean, if I said yes to deer meat, I kind of have to say yes no, to horse meat. No, you don't. No. There's no? A, there's a chasm between eating deer and reindeer and eating horse. There is a no, yeah, this is one, the one, one's in Sweden, the other's Ikea. This is, yeah, this is the one on the list that I'm taking a hard no <laughs> to the horse meat. But last one, squid ink pizza. So not squid itself, but not the squid, ink. Just the ink. Oh, no. If it was squid. It's black. It is totally black. It looks like a Halloween pizza. Nope. Charcoal foods. Like, okay. If it's charcoal foods though, is there, I think there's a difference though. Charcoal foods and, and squid ink. I, I, anything but the horse meat I'm good with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the horse meat is a, and it's not even that the, I don't even know the flavor might be fine, but I'm never getting to that point because I'm not putting horse meat in my mouth. There is yeah. just no way. If it, okay. The squid one is what kind of what threw me off though. If it was actual squid, that's, and we got to run a couple seconds here. Yes. I, I don't know why I'm taking up much t more time here, but actual squid, I'd be kind of okay with, but squid ink, I don't even know if that's edible. Oh, it'll be edible. It's just really dark and your mouth will be all black. Your teeth will be black. Your tongue will be black. You'll, it'll look kind of Halloween. Anyway, there you go. Let's now, now I'm absolutely famished. I can't wait to get home and find out what's for dinner or make something. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Oh, back tomorrow. Love to have you here. Thank you to Tom for keeping us on the air. Will for lining everything up. And to Dave Woodard, who in just a moment is going to come up with the 6 o'clock news. Stick around. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon. Oh.